Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Well, it's so nice to welcome you back to the Beeson Podcast today. Today we're going to hear a lecture. Our wonderful producer, uh, Betsy Childs, tells me that the lectures we play on the Beeson Podcast get some of the very best responses to this ministry. And today we have the privilege of hearing one of the great lecturers, I think, and scholars in our contemporary academy, Professor Philip Jenkins. Uh, Professor Jenkins is Distinguished Professor of History at Baylor University. He taught for many years at Penn State University. He is a prolific writer and one of my favorite scholars because every time I hear him or read him, I learn so very much. He's one of the most knowledgeable informed and interesting scholars out there anywhere. We remember him probably most of all for his uh, wonderful book, The Next Christendom, The Rise of Global Christianity, which was published in 2002. Although he's written dozens of other books, including one which is closer to the theme of this lecture he's giving on the podcast today, The Lost History of Christianity, The Thousand-Year Golden Age of the Church in the Middle East, Africa and Asia, and How It Died. That was published in 2008, and that's the year when he came to Beeson to present our World Christianity Lectures. Now, those of you who are interested in hearing things like this, uh, world-class quality professors, scholars, teachers, I want to invite you to come to our Biblical Studies Lectures. It happens in just a few days, February 4 through 6, with Professor Craig Keener from Asbury Theological Seminary. And then in April, we're again on the World Christianity Lectureship Circuit, April 8 through 10, and our guest will be Doug Birdsall. Well, you're going to enjoy hearing Professor Philip Jenkins, so we go right now into Hodges Chapel. He's already begun his talk, so he'll pick up in mid-sentence, but you'll catch on immediately to what he's about, and you're really going to enjoy and learn a lot from Professor Philip Jenkins talking about the lost history of global Christianity. Maybe we see Christianity spreading uh, across the Atlantic, reaching North America, and then, you know, roll titles, that's the, uh, the, that's the end of the film. I want to suggest to you, however, that we have lost a large part of the story and a critical part of the story. What I'd like you to do is to jettison that map, which is of Europe with Palestine down on the right-hand side here, and think instead of Europe and Asia and Africa, and think of Christianity expanding in three directions, not in one. Not just to Europe, but into Africa, and especially uh, into Asia. And that's going to have a lot of important implications for what we might call the kind of Christianity that we're talking about. Think about it. What is the history of the religion? It begins with a Semitic, Aramaic-speaking movement in the Near East, and then becomes Latin and Greek. We think of the centers of medieval uh, Christendom as being where? York Cathedral in England, Chartres uh, Cathedral. We think of Assisi. We think of what's happening in Europe. 
here's a surprising thought. You know that ancient Semitic Christianity, those people who call themselves not Christians, but Nazarenes, those people who follow Yeshua, not Jesus, are still doing the same thing a thousand and twelve hundred years after Christ's time. There is still a Christianity moving east and moving south in 1200 AD of Nazarenes following Yeshua and speaking the same language effectively as Jesus did. And we've lost it. That's what I mean by the lost history of Christianity. And I, what I'm trying to do is to begin to uh, rediscover it. And once again, as with so much else, this is not a case that, you know, I have suddenly uh, stumbled across a great pile of secret documents or somewhere. You know, I was uh, wandering in the desert and came across a cave. <laughs> I'm taking things that are well-known to specialists but have completely escaped the attention of many uh, church historians. And when you take them into effect, radically change so many of the statements that we would uh, make about the um, end of ancient Christianity. When did it die? How did it die? So uh, here's the thought. I'm going to tell you a story that you've never heard before. Okay, there's a daring comment. Christianity spread within the empire. The empire was initially very hostile to that faith and martyred many thousands of Christians. They persecuted the faith for hundreds of years and gradually gave it a grudging toleration. But nonetheless, Christianity benefited greatly from the empire. They spread along the roads that the empire built they built their great churches and cathedrals in the cities of the empire, and they benefited from the peace and the common language of the empire. What do you mean you've never heard this before? Of course you've heard it before. It's the story of the Roman Empire. It's also the story of the Persian Empire, which up until the 7th century stretched from basically Syria to the Indus. It included countries that today we would call Afghanistan, Turkmenistan. It also included the southern regions of Arabia. And everything I've just said is true of how the Christians spread east while they were spreading west. There's so much here, it's almost overwhelming, but just a couple of highlights. Christians probably reached Sri Lanka before they reached Ireland. Now, that's an interesting thought. I'd like to focus on one individual in particular who, for me, summarizes this whole lost history. In the year 800, there was a very famous event that uh, you've probably come across, which is in Rome, the Pope crowns the Emperor Charlemagne, and that is always taken as marking the beginning of Christendom and the union of church and state and so on. What's happening in the more important half of the Christian world at this point? And the answer is, in Baghdad, you have the patriarch of the Church of the East, which we sometimes misleadingly call the Nestorian Church, whose name is Timothy. 
And Timothy exercises power over a much larger part of the Christian world than the Pope does. While um, Charlemagne is attempting to conquer central Germany by the sword, Timothy, who I love to think has a sense of humor in writing lines like this, writes lines like the following. I have recently consecrated a metropolitan for the Turks, who at that point are living centered on Lake Baikal, and another for the Tibetans. There is an Episcopal structure in Tibet before there is one in central Germany. And I find that surprising. He is writing, of course, in Syriac, which is a language close to Aramaic. He refers to Yeshua, and he doesn't know the word Christian because he's a Nazarene. This church, by the way, also has some very interesting contacts. It's doing things around uh, the world. Uh, for one thing, it's still very much a church which has never lost its dialogue with Judaism. Round about the year 800, round about the year the Charlemagne is being crowned in Rome, we have a letter of Timothy which tells an interesting story. I have just been having an interesting conversation, he said, with a Jew in the process of converting to our church. And he tells a fascinating story. Near Jericho, they've recently found these caves with all these jars in with ancient Hebrew manuscripts. And what I'm doing, of course, is trying to find out what this has to tell us about the original text of the Old Testament. It, how, how close are these to the Septuagint, for example? Obviously, what we're describing here is the, uh, the second of three separate discoveries through time of the Dead Sea Scrolls, at a time when literally virtually no scholar in Europe would know which way up the manuscript should be held. And he's asking exactly the right modern questions. I think that tells you something about the fact this is, a this is the year 800. This is a long time after the church has ceased to be Semitic. Well, yeah, um, except, in, uh, except in the East. And I mentioned this church is expanding to the East and to, into South Asia. It's expanding along the uh, Silk Road. And uh, you may well have heard of a very famous uh, monument which records the, uh, the, the presence of the uh, Church of the East, which is erected around the year 800 in Timothy's time um, in China. And it records the coming of that mission to China around about the year 630 or give, give or take. Um, I, I always find it interesting, by the way, that means that the um, Christianity reached the capital of China around about the time it reached the capital of Anglo-Saxon England which is an interesting geographical comment. All through that experience, all through that expansion, of course, there are other people on the Silk Road. And Christianity has to define itself all along the way with Buddhists. And if anyone ever tells you that the Christian encounter with Asian religions is a modern experience, is a 20th century experience, no, it is much, much older. And it goes in somewhat different directions than you might think. Round about the year 800, I'm sorry to begin all my sentences like that. 
a Buddhist missionary arrives in the capital of China, an Indian Buddhist, with, how should I say this, a U-Haul load full of manuscripts and Buddhist sutras and texts and scriptures. The only problem is he doesn't know Chinese. He doesn't know Uyghur, which was the uh, other great language of the time. So what is he going to do with them? Well, the answer is obviously you ask for the help of the local Christian bishop of Chang'an, of the capital of China. And he and the bishop, Bishop Adam, translate the main Buddhist scriptures into Chinese. And those Buddhist texts are put into Chinese by Christians. Those same Buddhist texts, by the way, which are put into Chinese, are then taken by other Buddhist monks who are in, um, in China at the time from Japan. They take those manuscripts back to Japan, which they then become the basis of all later Japanese Buddhist movements, including Zen. And there's a lot of debate about who is influencing whom the most. Certainly, some of the people of the Church of the East, when they translate things, they use a lot of Buddhist concepts. A lot of Christian ideas find their way into the Buddhism of China and certainly of Tibet. Christianity is in conversation with Buddhism, and of course it's in conversation with Islam in a very interesting way. Think about it. I'm talking about the year 800. Since about 640, Syria, Persia have been under Muslim control. And as far as the Church of the East is fine, uh, is concerned, that's perfectly fine. They get on very well with the Muslims. The, uh, the patriarch Timothy actually has a very civilized, very friendly religious dialogue with the caliph of the day, Almaty. Most of his time in office coincides with the famous caliph Harun al-Rashid, the caliph of the, uh, of the Arabian Nights. Bear in mind, when you think of the Arabian Nights that most of the, um, the scribes and uh, people keeping the government going in Baghdad of the day are Christian. We have become used to a familiar idea, which is medieval Europe, Renaissance Europe, get a lot of their ideas, their thoughts from the Arab world. It's from the Arab world that they get their translations of Aristotle, that they get all these ancient Greek manuscripts, which the Arabs preserve. Everything there is true, with one exception. We think of that as the great age of the Muslim transmission of learning. Please remember, for the first three or four hundred years after the Arab conquest, that is Christian learning. It is the Christians in Baghdad who uh, translate the material, who translate Aristotle. And you look at these people. Uh, Timothy himself translates texts of, of Aristotle. What we think of as Arab learning is very often Christian and Jewish learning. And some of the things they transmit are very interesting. Run about the year 620, a Syriac bishop of the Church of the East writes a text, and he's basically arguing, you know, look, the, uh, the Greeks are very proud of themselves, 
but uh, you can find great learning in other cultures too. I mean, these, these Indians, for example, they have just turned up this really good system where you can put all numbers in just nine symbols. And what, what do we call those? Oh, yes, Arabic numerals come through Syriac Christians. I could, as they say, talk about this at great length, and I've written about this at some length, but the point I'm trying to make is that you have this great church, the Church of the East, which has its headquarters in places which right now are some of the most dangerous and disturbed places of the world. Places in Iraq, such as Basra, Tikrit, the hometown of uh, Saddam Hussein and his uh, family, Mosul, Baghdad, and the area along the border of Turkey and Iraq, which today is the heart of Kurdistan, which back then is the heart of the Christian Near East, where right up until the 19th century, probably you have some of the world's richest troves of early Christian manuscripts. I mean early Christian manuscripts, which are basically all destroyed during the early 19th century irreparably. It's one of the catastrophes of Christian history. This church stretches through the heart of Asia. They have metropolitans in places like Patna in India. And it is also a great missionary church. I mentioned one name to you just to suggest what we have lost. I'll give you a name, Meru, M-E-R-V, a great city in what is now Turkmenistan on the borders of Afghanistan from the 6th century to, uh, through the 11th, is probably the greatest center of Christian intellectual inquiry and enterprise. It is also the most populous city on the planet for about 200 years, and we've, we've lost it entirely. And it is also the center in which, in this place in the, uh, Central Asia, they translate all the texts from Greek and Syriac into the languages of, as they call them, the countries of the sunrise, the language of the Turks and the Tibetans and the Chinese and the Indians, where Christians have to, on a daily basis, interact with Buddhists and Muslims and Zoroastrians and Manichaeans. A whole lost world. If anyone tells you that global Christianity is a new phenomenon, please remember the patriarch Timothy. If anyone tells you that the process of Christian interaction with other religions is a new phenomenon, think of this uh, story. And by now, I suppose an obvious question should be uh, striking you. Where is it? Where does it go? That's a, a rather complex story. What does not happen is that Muslims do not take over this area and wipe out the Christians. Still in the 12th and the 13th centuries, not only is this Christian intellectual life flourishing in great monasteries like Deir as Safran, which is the great yellow, the Safran monastery on the Iraqi-Turkish uh, border, but there's actually a Syriac Christian renaissance in progress. They're producing some of the greatest historians and writers and scholars of the Middle Ages right into the 13th century. The Muslims generally 
get on quite well. Anyone who believes that Islam is a religion of tyranny and oppression and religious extermination needs to account for the first 600 years of Muslim history. Anyone who believes that Islam is a religion of peace and tolerance needs to account for the next 600 years of Muslim history. Neither force is hardwired into the, the DNA of the religion, so to speak. What goes wrong? If you are alive in 1250, if you are a Christian, can I just emphasize that date? That is two-thirds of the way, if you like, through the history of Christianity. That is a thousand years after most of us have given up paying much attention to what's happening in the East. In the year 1250, you stand a very good chance of seeing the end of Islam. You stand a very good chance of seeing Christianity reconquer the known world because they have made some friends. Christians have uh, converted very extensively among the tribes of Central Asia. They have converted people like the Karaites. And the Karaites do not exist as a tribe at this uh, point, but their womenfolk are all closely intermarried with the Mongols. And when the Mongols invade the Middle East, they generally are not Christian, but their moms are and their wives are. And when they take Baghdad in 1258, they are very careful to destroy all the mosques and none of the churches. The first thing they do when they take Baghdad is take one of the caliph's great palaces and give it to the Christian patriarch. The Christians are allowed to do things they have not been allowed to do for centuries, to carry crosses in public parade, to drink wine publicly, even to execute people who tried to convert to Islam in Baghdad. Where did it go? Where did it go? Firstly, as time goes by, Muslim influence among the Mongols becomes stronger and stronger until about 1300, they become Muslim. And suddenly you have these great Mongol superstates stretching from the Mediterranean to uh, the Pacific, which are Muslim states, which obviously are much harsher to Christians. And secondly, and this is going to sound very timely, there is a catastrophic climate change which uproots and destroys the Church of the East. Between 1250 and 1350, the world experiences a great period of global cooling, which marks a phase which lasts for several centuries. Trade routes fall into disuse. Growing seasons shrink. People starve. And when this happens in a world in which all is God's will, you look for scapegoats. We all know what happens in Europe at this point. Christians turn on Jews. In 1290, uh, England expels all its Jews. 1306, France expels all its Jews. The great pogroms begin in 1320. The reason that the Jews end up in Eastern Europe is because they've been virtually wiped out in Western Europe between about 1300 and 1330. Exactly the same thing happens to the Christians in the Middle East and in China. Across Asia, Christians are persecuted and most communities are wiped out. In the best cases, reduced to subject populations 
tiny minorities, very, very restrained in what they, can, uh, they do. Um, you can no longer have a patriarch who lives in Baghdad. He has to literally take to the hills, live in a little monastery in uh, northern, uh, northern Iraq. It begins basically a dark age for the, um, for the Middle East's Christians, who by this point have been reduced to a tiny minority. This is the point, by the way, around about 1300, 700 years after the Arab invasions, that the Middle East becomes mainly, overwhelmingly Muslim. Remember those maps, you see, where they show the Arab invasions sweeping over the Mediterranean, the Middle East? Well, obviously, you know, it's the History Channel, it's a spreading, uh, spreading color, so obviously everyone's suddenly becoming Muslim. Well, not for a few hundred years, no. Where do they go? Um, and here's a, uh, here's a thought. We think of Christianity moving from the Middle East to Europe, and we think of the creation of Christian Europe as if Europe has a special affinity for the faith. Let me suggest an alternative vision there, if you like. Christianity goes west and east and south. And Europe stands out because that is the continent where it is not extirpated, where it is not basically destroyed. What makes Christian Europe is it survives. And here's, a, here's a, if you like, a challenging thought. What allows Christianity to have the geography it does is that in some areas, Christianity has an alliance with strong enough states to protect the church. And I know that I'm speaking in uh, a context where there are many Baptists who are deeply suspicious of a church-state alliance. And my suggestion is, without that church-state alliance, Christianity would be a footnote in Chinese and Islamic history books, which is an interesting thought. A couple of other thoughts that I will just uh, touch very uh, briefly. Where do they go? First thought is if you go to the Middle East, if you go to great mosques in the Middle East, in the vast majority of cases, you are visiting the physical remains of ancient Christianity. If you go to the great mosque of Damascus, for example, that was the great church of uh, John the Baptist which includes the uh, supposed tomb of John the Baptist. Um, where are all these great churches in Iraq and Iran? In most cases, they lie under village mosques, and they just represent a few, um, a few stones. But the religion itself continues in interesting ways. For long centuries after the Church of the East is uprooted, we see very, very strong survivals within an Islamic world. And I think this is interesting in terms of uh, relations between Christianity and Islam. You have two religions which have so many conflicts because they are such close sisters. If you were translated back in time to the year 600 or 700 AD, and you could walk into one of the great churches of the time, I'll put this very plainly, you would think you would walk into a mosque. First of all, you would see people prostrating themselves on the ground, which is what Christians did. When the Muslims came into the Christian world and saw this, they thought this was very strange. Why would people do such things? This is really humiliating. They were in buildings that we today would say, oh, look, it's a mosque. But they're not. They're churches. They're martyria. 
with Syrian church towers. Much of what a modern Westerner sees as typically Muslim is Syriac Christian. It is an ancient form of Christian. And if you ever want to read a book which really will stretch your mind, I uh, commend to you a book by a man called Christoph Luxemburg with the snappy title, The Syro-Aramaic Reading of the uh, Koran. It, it isn't exactly the Da Vinci Code, but it's... Uh... <laughs> what this man claims is, this is a German scholar who uses a pseudonym and doesn't want his name known for very good reasons, which I'll explain in a moment. His argument is simple, and he's not the only one who makes this, but what he says is, if you look at the Quran, probably 15% of it is unintelligible to a Muslim Arab reader, and that, that's probably true. If, he says, you realize that most of the Quran originated as a Syriac Christian church lectionary, which is interpreted and misunderstood, then you can suddenly see where all this stuff is coming from. The oldest surah of the Quran, which in the standard translation ends something like, you know, so turn to him and pray to God, he says, well, the original meaning of this is absolutely obvious in the Syriac. Um, it's go and attend Eucharist. And the other one, the other sort of jaw-dropping one I always like, is if you look at uh, the old Syriac Christian literature, um, it's full of what happens to you, the blessings of the virtuous dead when they go to heaven and they're given these great rewards, and especially the most precious commodity of the day, which is white raisins, these sacred, holy white raisins, the hur, which is one letter different from what shows up in the Quran as virgins. And of course, you got 72 white raisins when you arrived in heaven. <laughs> Clearly, I'm only uh, scratching the surface of a very large story, but the point is you cannot understand the origins of Islam without seeing it in its roots in Syriac Christianity, where you find a large part of what I've called the lost history of Christianity. You see it in all sorts of other ways. You see it in, again, a vast understudied phenomenon, which is that of crypto-Christianity. Those people who live in very anti-Christian communities maintain their identity um, and remain as closeted Christians. And you look at some of the communities across the Middle East, across the Muslim Middle East uh, to this day, right up through the 19th century, travelers in Turkey used to comment that in most of rural Turkey, women always absolutely insisted, Muslim women always insisted on their children being baptized. 20% of the people of Turkey belong to a group called the Alevis, who follow basically no Muslim requirements, but whose ritual year includes St. George's Day and Christmas. Syria is run by the, uh, the Alawites, who are an extremely secretive Muslim sect whose ideas uh, combine Christian and Gnostic views and who are, who are known for centuries as the Nusairis. The Nusairi is a word which means little Christians, which may be, which may be accurate. And all I've been talking about is what happens when you look at the Syriac Christianity that goes east 
I haven't said anything about the great churches of Ethiopia, of Nubia, which again represent a stunning story. Uh, All the way through, there's a quote I um, I love from a 16th century Portuguese traveler, and he's from Counter-Reformation Portugal. You know what that's like? Very, very Catholic. And he says, these people have got so many churches. You can't even sing in one without being heard in another, or many more. In fact, he says, then then he describes what Lent was like in most of the Christian world, in Africa and in Asia through most of its history, where uh, that, uh, that 40-day time whereby you didn't eat anything between sunrise and sunset, or Ramadan, as we call it. <sighs> Clearly, I could go on at some length, but a couple of, uh, a couple of final uh, comments. We live today in what you might call the final martyrdom of the church in Iraq. When you read these stories, when you read about priests being killed in Mosul or Basra, please remember these are not members of some, you know, bizarre missionary church established 50 years ago. These are the lineal heirs of the Church of the Apostles. These are Nazarenes. They are the last of the Nazarenes. And I will just make one final point. I ask you to think about a theology here. Everyone here has read a book or read an article about the origin of a church, how a church came into existence, how it rose, yes? How many of you have ever read an account of the destruction or elimination of a church? We have a missionary theology. Do we also need a theology of Christian extinction? We know the phrase about go and make disciples of all nations. Here's a thought. How do we explain when people do that and then those people cease to be disciples? When Christianity is destroyed utterly in a region, do we need a theology of Christian extinction? And... uh, There is an answer here. There are people who've tried to do this, but not surprisingly, they're novelists. People like Shusako Endo in his book, Silence, which raises the question, looks at all the priests being killed and the churches being destroyed, and the priest, the last priest, asks himself against all this, why is God silent? Why are we hearing nothing? And that's not the only question or the only interpretation but it's a, um, it's a powerful one. What I'm suggesting, in short, is that most of us, whether we think of ourselves as historians of Christianity or not, have a history in mind. We know about Christianity. It began in Jerusalem, spread into Europe, spread to America. But when we have that history... Yeah, we do. When we have that history, to tell a history is also to silence other histories. And when you look at those other histories, it puts a radically new light on what we think of as a new phenomenon of global Christianity. So what my subject is, is the end of global Christianity, the end of the first global Christianity.
You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.